Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Some time ago, I had begun a new series, which is on uh, the parables. We interrupted that um, in my uh, last uh, cycle uh, to focus on some weaknesses uh, in our congregation. Uh, The leadership uh, suggested that I preach on areas of weakness that we had noted in our yearly uh, strategy meeting. I did that, so I'm returning to parables uh, this week and next, and looking at uh, the parable of the two foundations in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 24 to 27. So let's ask God uh, to bless the hearing of his word. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to your word and ask that you would come in the person of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear your voice and that you would give us hearts to respond in a way that is pleasing in your sight. We ask it in dependence upon you And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 7, then verse 24. Jesus speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Four points to this sermon. First of all, the conclusions, plural, which are contained in these verses. Secondly, the concern of Jesus. Thirdly, the choice presented to you and me. And fourthly, the commitment that is required in, in response. So the conclusions, the concern, the choice, and the commitment. Jesus here is concluding the Sermon on the Mount which is contained in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel according to Matthew. And he's concluding the Sermon on the Mount with a passage of heart-searching application. It's an extraordinary claim that Jesus makes in these words. Your whole life will be judged by your response to his words. That's an extraordinary claim. I trust that for each and every one of us, it's a heart-probing claim as well. Your whole life will be judged by how you respond to the words spoken by Jesus Christ. First of all, the conclusions then. You see that in verse 24, somewhat obscured here in our English Standard Version. The second word in verse 24 is, then alternately translated therefore. Either way, it's a conjunction, a conjunction 
boys and girls, joins with two things. It joins what follows with what has gone before. And therefore, it is a conclusion, all right? Jesus is wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount, and he concludes with these words. And the conclusion is multiple in effect. It's a conclusion because the conjunction joins verses 24 through 27 with what immediately precedes it, and we'll have opportunity to note that momentarily. But properly, it's also a conclusion to the entirety of what Jesus has spoken in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So you can see that it's a multiple conclusion. However, the prime conclusion which is spoken of in verse 27 is that last clause, and great was the fall of it. Speaking of the flood, which he has just mentioned. The flood is the flood of final judgment. One author points out the language of storms and floods is often used as a metaphor for destruction and especially of God's judgment. Examples throughout scripture are found, just so you can be good Bereans, 2 Samuel chapter 5, Job 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 88, Psalm 124, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 30, Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel 38, Nahum chapter 1, and in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 11, and Revelation chapter 16. So Jesus here is not only concluding his sermon, he's concluding the matter of your entire life. The entirety of your life in the final judgment will depend on how you respond to Jesus' words. Your life then will be judged by Jesus' words, and your life now is similarly judged by Jesus' words. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, I think it's worth noting that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not speaking to unbelievers. Jesus is speaking to disciples. He's speaking to those who he addresses as citizens of God's kingdom, as those who are children of God's family, just like Israel was um, citizens of God's kingdom Uh, children of God's family, and disciples of the Lord in the Old Testament. But, if you're familiar at all with the history of Israel, though they were considered by those designations, they were an unfaithful and an unbelieving people. God redeems Israel. Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son in reference to the Exodus. God relieves them from bondage and slavery in Egypt, brings them out to Mount Sinai that they may worship him. And what do they do? They worship a golden calf, idols. It's not long after that that you have other episodes of unbelief as they wander in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. As they finally go into the promised land, they do not heed the word of the Lord and dispossess all the peoples that live there, which were the Lord's enemies. And of course, the history of Israel is one of repeated unfaithfulness, unbelief, disobedience over and over again until finally God has to send them into exile. And then God sends the northern tribes into exile and they're never heard from again. And then as you come to the end of the Old Testament period, you have 400 years of silence where God does not address his people. 
For all the years of their history, God sent prophets to them over and over and over again to call them to repentance, to call them back to the Lord, to call them back to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet repeatedly, as God elsewhere says, all day long I held out my hands to a stubborn and obstinate people. Well, Jesus speaks these words to that very same group of people. Disciples, citizens of God's kingdom, children of God's family, Israelites. Today we would say God speaks these words to the church. Draw it home a little bit closer with a little bit finer point. God speaks these words to you. And God speaks these words to me. The Sermon on the Mount relates the repentance and the righteousness which belong to God's kingdom. And Jesus here is establishing that and setting it forth for everyone who hears. So the conclusions. But what's the concern? Well, if you're a very good student of the Bible, and particularly of the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe you were here years ago uh, when in Bible study and in exposition, it was quite a number of years ago, I preached and taught on the Sermon on the Mount. The concern of Jesus is that his hearers, his disciples, his people, would neither be like the world, nor that would they be like the religious hypocrites in Israel. Look at chapter 6 and verse 8, for example. Chapter 6 and verse 8. As Jesus teaches about prayer, he makes a very important point. Do not be like them. That, if you will, uh, as John Stott, I think, so majestically uh, and magnificently puts it forth in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, you are not to be like them. It's the exact words that God spoke to Israel in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 3. You can look that up later. You are not to be like them. You're neither to be like the world, Gentiles, unbelievers, pagans, but neither are you to be like the religious elite, the hypocrites in Israel, who hear my word but don't put it into practice, who listen to what I have to say but don't do it. Don't be like them either. The character of Israelites or the disciples whom Jesus addresses are to be a counter-cultural people. We dealt with this in former series going through the book of Ephesians. The church is to be a counter-cultural people. Our elder opened our worship at 1130 with just those words. We have designated as our theme. We are seeking to make a difference by being different. We don't want to mimic the ways of the world, but neither do we want to be just another church. God spare us from Nicianity. No, we're to be alive like lights in darkness. Our righteousness is to exceed that of the religious leaders in our conduct and devotion. Our love is to be greater. We're to be different from both pagans and from religious people both from the secular world and from the nominal church. And this addresses things that are current in the contemporary Christian church in North America. Somehow it's, became, it's become prominent and popular what has come to be known as easy believism or cheap grace. 
that what makes one a Christian is simply praying a prayer or making a particular confession of some formula or perhaps in more intellectually oriented circles, if you just believe the right things, you're a Christian. That is not true. As we momentarily see, right? Jesus here in these passages, in these verses, says you must do his word. It's not enough simply to believe it, to hear it, to read it, but to put it into practice is what's required. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about this back in World War, uh, World War II. He was, uh, if you may know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Because he was writing about the German church, the church in Germany under Adolf Hitler. As Nazism came to power in Germany, people began to recognize it for the evil ideology that it was. But the church, rather than standing up for the slaughter of the Jewish people, the church, rather than standing up to Hitler, just bent over like a cheap cardboard box and folded before Hitler and before all the Nazis. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to that as cheap grace, easy believism. You call yourself a Christian, but you won't stand up for what's right. You won't stand up for what's true. And, of course, we can cross the Atlantic and find the same in the church in North America, where racism was promulgated in churches across the United States under cover of Christianity, and perhaps in some segments still does. Cheap grace, easy believism. These words condemn such an idea. Also, the idea, popular in some circles today, that the law is the opposite of grace. We have this antinomy, antithesis posited between law and grace. The opposite of law is not grace. The opposite of law is chaos, all right? The law, think Ten Commandments, think Exodus 20. The law is given in a context of grace. The preface to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's pure grace. It was not because of anything that Israel did, not because of anything that they were. God in his sovereign mercy looked down on them in their misery and redeemed them out of bondage and slavery and said, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship by images. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall honor my uh, Sabbath day. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie and you shall not covet. All as a response to his grace. As the Heidelberg Catechism so aptly puts it in its exposition of the Ten Commandments, it's the rule of gratitude. Properly understood, it is how one thanks God for rescuing them, for saving them purely by his grace. The law is not the opposite of grace. And yet we see that's a popular teaching in the church in North America today. Antinomianism is another word. Anti-nomos, against law. Law is deprecated. Law is down. Law bad. Grace good. So we don't, we thank God that we're under grace. We're no longer under law. Could anything be more contrary to what Jesus says here? Antinomianism is anti-Christian. The faith that saves the reformers said, 
It's justification. It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always attended by an obedient life. Think of it like this. The eye alone sees. Faith alone saves. But faith is never alone any more than the eye plucked out of the body is alone and is able to see. No, it's the eye alone that sees, not the hand, not the foot, not the kneecap. It's the eye alone that sees, but it's not alone. It's part of a body. So faith alone saves, but it's never alone. It's always accompanied by saving good works. Antinomianism has no place in the Christian church today. Jesus' concern is that his people, his church, be different. His church not be like the pagans who disregard and disobey God's word, could care less what God has to say. I'm going my own way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live how I want. Not to be like that, but also not to be like a nominal church who says one thing but doesn't put God's word into practice, who doesn't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't be like them, is the concern of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Which which brings us to the choice. The choice which Jesus presents in these two foundations is not a choice between the world and the church, but the choice is between true Christians and counterfeit Christians. Think of it. Look at our text. A wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house. It's the same thing when you get down to verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 27. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. If you were looking at the two houses, you would see no difference. They just look like a normal run-of-the-mill house. It's when the judgment comes. It's when the flood comes. It's when the rain comes. It's when the trouble comes that it exposes the foundations. And the foundations are what are different. And what are the foundations? Those who hear the word and do it. True Christians. Those who hear the word and don't do it. Counterfeit Christians. Just like Israel in the Old Testament. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the choice. True Christians and counterfeit Christians both read the Bible Both go to church, both listen to sermons, both buy Christian literature, maybe listen to Christian podcasts. To all appearances, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. But the difference is in what choices they make. Look at the context here. Look at the sustained emphasis on choosing to uh, Jesus' hearers. There are two ways. Look at verses 13 and 14 in the text. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. The broad gate, the narrow gate, what choice? Or two, um, two teachers in verses 15 through 20. True teachers, right? And false teachers. And by the way, I'm going to pause here for a moment. I have to do this whenever I come to this text 
because far too many preachers around the Christian church in contemporary North American context today use this to beat up the sheep, all right? As if somehow you don't know whether or not when you get to Judgment Day you're going to hear from Jesus, I never knew you away from me. Maybe you've been a recipient of that kind of teaching and preaching. Look at the text. That is not what this text is saying. Please look at the text. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. Who's being warned about here? Not each and every person sitting in the pew. Not each and every Christian who ever hears a sermon. Not anybody who goes to church and is told, well, you never know, maybe you'll get to judgment day. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Who's he talking about? It's not my opinion. Please look at the text. False prophets. And what characterizes a false prophet? Look, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from the thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this is another text wrenched out of context. By their fruits you will know them. That's not spoken about every Christian. It's spoken about false prophets. And what's the fruit? Well, look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's he talking about? False prophets. They say, Lord, Lord. They're very religious. But who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Far from this being a mystery, far from this being a guessing game, far from being this a text that preachers can use to beat up the sheep, to lead them into doubt, lack of assurance, and wondering whether or not they will hear from Jesus on Judgment Day, I never knew you. It says the exact opposite. You can know whether or not you're going to go to heaven. How will you know whether or not you go to heaven? How would, it's not my opinion. Look at the text. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's who goes to heaven. Read on. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Who's he talking about? False prophets. Did we not prophesy? In your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name. Then I will declare to them, to who? To false prophets. Who are the false prophets? They say, Lord, Lord, but they don't do it. Read on. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you'd depart from me. That's not a period. It's a comma. Look at the text. Who? You workers of lawlessness. The word is anomia in Greek. You doers of lawlessness. You don't do the will of my Father in heaven. You say, Lord, Lord. You, you talk a good talk, but you don't walk the walk. To you, I will say, I never knew you. You're a doer of lawlessness. You're an antinomian. You do your own thing. Oh, you're all religious, Lord, Lord. Oh, you can play the game at the... The charismatic church casting out demons and prophesying, oh, the Lord gave me a word for you. All too often they're false prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. They don't do the will of the Father in heaven, they're going to hell. Very clear. 
So then when you get to verse 24, and you have a conjunction, therefore, then, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Nothing to fear. A true Israelite, a true Christian. But everyone who hears these words and mine and doesn't do them, just like old Israel, drawing near to God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. And great was the fall of it. A heart made new. A heart transformed by the Spirit of God. A heart that beats again with the lifeblood of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a heart that puts God's word into practice. A heart made new, you see, reveals who you are. What you do, how you live, reveals the condition of your heart. And what you do and how you do it expresses what you really are. A true Christian? A true Israelite? Or just a false professor? I hear teachers in the church today who said, oh, the law says do. The gospel says done. Nonsense. Look with me. Apart from what Jesus says in these verses, do it. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. Let's take our touchstone in Scripture. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do it. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. As he said these things, verse 27, a woman in the crowd raised a voice, said, Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast which, at which you were nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Do it. Look at John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 17. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. This this is a fascinating passage. I'm going to comment on it in one minute here. All right? Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That sounds like an ethical imperative to me. Ought. Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than master, a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do them. When was the last time you saw anybody wash somebody else's feet? You can talk to me over lunch about that one. Or James, one which, which I suspect most, if not all of you, are more familiar. James chapter 1, verse 22. Just to underscore, highlight, 
emphasize bold relief, everything that I have said to you already, not my personal theological opinion, not my theological perspective, but exactly the teaching of Jesus and, and uh, now James as well. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless, religion that is pure and undefiled. And then it goes on to chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. The eye alone sees. Faith, saving faith, regenerate, born-again, spirit-filled heart evidences and demonstrates what you are by how you live. All right? Not my opinion, not my theological perspective. The black and white teaching of the letter of the Word of God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, I want to assure you that when I come to you with a message like this, I've had to preach it to myself. But I trust you can see that these are heart-searching words. These are extraordinary claims that Jesus makes. Your whole life, present and future, will be judged by your response to Jesus' words. Which brings us to the commitment which is called for here. One author put it this way. John Stott, forementioned, one of my most reliable and favored commentators, The question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus. Not whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, memorizing, until our minds are stuffed with this teaching. But whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus which we profess is one of our life's major realities. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Luke 6, same teaching, two foundations. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Stott goes on, he says, major qualification, make sure you get this. I don't want anybody to accuse me of heresy here. He says, this is not, of course, to teach that the way of salvation or the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is by good works of obedience. For the whole New Testament offers salvation only by the sheer grace of God through faith. What Jesus is stressing, however, is that those who truly hear the gospel and profess faith will always obey him, expressing their faith in their works. Now, to wrap up on a word of encouragement, There's a promise in these verses as well. And albeit I haven't emphasized that enough, I certainly want to conclude with it. Turn back to Matthew 7, the text with which we began. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What's the promise? The promise is if you build your life on his word, what you do in this world will last forever. Our elder mentioned, and I repeated, we seek to make a difference by being different. I was just relating to somebody yesterday or the day before, I don't remember, that years ago we had instilled in the congregation early on a vision which was 400 years into the future. That we want people 400 years from now. We're coming up, we're, we're actually at our 20th anniversary. But we want people 400 years from now to look back and say, look at what God started 400 years ago. How's that going to happen? Well, it happens by being a covenantal community, as we have in our mission, uh, our uh, vision statement. It happens with our mission statement, by sharing the love of Christ with those amongst whom we live, work, study, and play, that they also may know the Lord. But it comes about because we're actually putting the word of God into practice. We believe it, we love it, we live it. We're going to train our children to learn it, love it, live it. And by the grace of God, they'll teach their children. And they'll teach their children. And they'll teach their children. So that 400 years from now, somebody says, look at what God entrusted to me through my father, my grandfather, my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother. 400 years ago, God did something in the heart of a bunch of Meshuggah cups in, in New York City. A bunch of Shlemiels and Shlemazels like us. And it will last forever. What we do that is founded upon Christ will continue forever. Our labor will not be lost. Our efforts to build Christian homes, Christian churches, Christian schools, and to live as Christians in the marketplace, in the community, will not be in vain. Right now counts forever in Christ. Therefore, be encouraged. Be energized. Be diligent. Build on the sure foundation the rock. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are candid, you are honest with us. We are thankful that you do not sugarcoat the truth regarding our ancestors, the Jewish people, who even today have the veil remaining over their, under, over their eyes so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ who are under your judicial hardening for their unbelief and their disobedience. We pray that in this Passover season that they do not have a lamb to take away their sins. We pray that they might come to know Jesus as the Lamb of God who alone can take away the sins of the world. We pray that you would grant us grace, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit to be doers of the word and not mere hearers. We ask it in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. And amen.